listening to WMNF Tampa. Hi, I'm Sean, and I hope you tune in to my interview show called Tuesday Cafe every Tuesday morning at 10 on 88.5 WMNF. I interview environmentalists, politicians, social justice activists, academics, and other experts about topics that impact you right here in the Tampa Bay area. I focus on issues that are important locally and across the whole state of Florida. The show is called Tuesday Cafe with Sean Canan. It's every Tuesday morning at 10 on 88.5 FM, WMNF Tampa, and on WMNF.org. Here comes the sun. Here comes the sun. I say it's all right. Good day and welcome to the Sustainable Living Show on WMNF Tampa, 88.5 where every Monday at 11, we bring you a conversation with local experts on sustainable issues. Your hosts today are myself, Kenny Coogan, and the astonishing Annie Oh Ellis. my goodness, I like that one. Astonishing. <laughs> I'm in awe. Yes. <laughs> Mr. Bill Grace is keeping you in check, and Irene is answering your calls. Yay. So, Annie, got any news from this past week? Well, you know, I'm just busy, 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 but I am trying to, uh, you know, get everything going. I'm going to sell my house and all the plants and everything around it, so stay tuned. <laughs> Because we're going to be digging out a lot of stuff. But uh, what I know you had some wonderful talk this weekend, didn't you? Yes. So this past week I did a talk at a plant group. And before I started, we went around the room and um, the president asked, you know, oh, what, what pest problems do you have? What plant problems do you have? What plants are blooming? What looks good? And this person stood up and she said that she has these really large toads in her yard. And she's very nervous about them, and she's never heard of them before. Oh. And then she went on to say that she, like, sent pictures to the extension office to get them ID'd. And then she got out, like, this big piece of paper and saying, these are known as a cane toad. And then she went, like, through the whole history of cane toads and how they were first introduced in... In your talk? In Florida. Well, this was, like, at the share. Oh, got the it. Sharing part. But what I took away from that was that people still don't know... The difference. Uh, well, they don't know the difference, but they didn't even know that was a thing. Oh, wow. That surprises and, me, too. And they've too. been here yeah. since the 30s and 40s. So that's kind of like where we're starting. That's interesting. If people don't even recognize that we have these invasive animals, you know, the, the thing, you know how are we going to take care of them? And the thing, what I wanted to say about that is, is that a lot of times people are so quick to kill those cane toads that they're killing our regular, uh, you yes. know, Florida native toads and frogs uh, because they're so scared instead of, you know, really. And then if you put it online on some of these sites, uh, everybody will jump on it, even if they're not really uh, skilled enough to be able to identify it. And then they, they're, so they're killing everything. So, yeah. It's important to know what to do, for real. That is right. And today we are talking with Dr. Drew Kramer and Austin Smith from the Department of Integrative Biology at the University of South Florida, just up the road, about invasive animals. Yeah, yeah. This is exciting because it's all about all different types of animals and all that. Dr. Drew Kramer, uh, his current work is in the lab, uh, includes developing uh, models for invasive species risk management and for predicting zoonotic 
Zoonotic? Yeah. Zoonotic, yeah. Zoonotic diseases from wildlife to humans. Oh, that's super interesting uh, because of all the things that have happened uh, in the, as of late. And so Austin Smith, he's a Ph.D. candidate in Dr. Kramer's lab. He's a graduate from University of Florida with a master's in ecology with a concentration in wildlife conversation. I'm Conservation, really, probably. Yeah, it says conservation. <laughs> A yeah. conscious conversation, <laughs> which actually is really what we're going to be doing. Talking right? with the animals. That's right. <laughs> Dr. Well, we won't be talking with the animals, exactly, <laughs> but uh, but we're going to be talking about them. So we're really had that, uh, really glad that you're here, uh, Drew and Austin. Live in the studio. Live, right next oh. to us. <laughs> All heads set it up with their microphones and everything. Thanks for having us. We're thrilled. Yes, really. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. So we have a, you know some questions here for y'all. And um, so if you, uh, Austin, if uh, you are a corn, oh, I can't even pronounce this. Quantitative. Thank you very much. Ecologist. What does that mean? See, I can't even say it, so I don't even know what it means <laughs> so for sure. Yeah. So uh, a quantitative ecology is just a, a mathematical take on ecological um, data. So uh, we have a, a, a various... Uh, events that occur with um, the environment or animals, and we want to make predictions of what could occur. Mm-hmm. Um, and so our best friends as, as a qua- uh, quantitative ecologists is, is data um, and, and analyzing it. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, so you get the stats in for what's happening now and how long that's happened, Correct. and then it's expect what it's going to happen in the future. Yeah. That's and what you're doing, predicting. Okay, that's, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it's a great time to be doing that because there's so much more data than there used to be, you know, between things like daily weather records to um, citizen scientists out there taking pictures of what they're observing. And, and so we can really leverage all of that and combine it and get um, a lot of insight into what's going on ecologically. So just you saying that makes me think that's really great. But it, I wonder, is it just people are just becoming more interested in that? Or it's just that documentation has become such a thing nowadays? Uh, I think it's probably a combination, right? They feed together. So the, the tools are there to, to share those photos, share those records of right. natural species. And then when people see that, they get interested. And so it, it kind of builds on itself, I think. Yeah, I guess social media probably uh, produces a lot of that interest as well because it's all out there. So, um, so Drew, you're interested in what biological mechanisms cause some species to decline while others proliferate and become invasive. So, Drew, can you tell us what are some of the most problematic invasive species in Florida? And we know... The yeah. marine toad, the cane toad is one of them. Yeah, yeah. The, the cane toad is one of them. And I think most of them will be familiar to a lot of the listeners, right? So there's the Burmese python, um, one that might not be quite as well known to urban listeners is that feral hogs are by far one of the most destructive and um, costly species that we have here in Florida. Um, there's also lionfish on the reefs mm-hmm. and uh Giant African land snail is one that's been in the news recently where that's in a little bit different situation, right? Because we still maybe have a chance to to control and perhaps eradicate that one. Um, but the list in Florida is long. So you just said that, that we have a chance to control and eradicate that snail. Uh, I know that they did have an area, I think it was in Newport Ritchie area, that they had cordoned off uh, and they were really serious, you know, about 
working on that. So I know that a lot of people say, what can I do about that? They don't feel that that it is manageable, any of this stuff. They don't think any of it is manageable, that it's too late, uh, you know, horses out of the barn, you know, kind of a thing. But you're just saying to me or to everybody else that we can do something if we do it correctly quickly. That's right. right. That's right. The, um, the, the stage at which we can have some positive effect is that preventative stage. So it's um, early surveillance and then quick action in response to those detections. So as mentioning citizen science, and I think Kenny's example of the, you know, the woman recognizing the cane toad, right? Maybe we can't do anything about cane toads now, but people seeing some snail or some bird or something that they haven't seen before, that's worth sharing and, and making people aware of. And the worst thing that can happen is they learn something cool about, you know, the wildlife around them. And the best thing that could happen is we catch one of these invasions early on. Yeah, that's that's great. I mean, just what you just said, too, is about like it becomes people become involved and they're they become aware of their surroundings instead of just, you know, going in the house, uh, coming out, getting in the car. <laughs> you know, they're conscious of what is in their land. You should turn your anger into action. Oh, that's so sweet. I kidding. stole that from somebody about two weeks ago and I like it. Yeah, I do too. That's a good one. So, Drew, can you talk a little bit about how much money... Does invasive species cost Florida or the U.S.? Yeah, sure. Um, we've we've actually done some very recent work on this, trying to understand this because we don't know how much money it's costing us. We have an estimate of of what the floor is, so what is the minimum, um, and that's for the U.S. in the range of twenty some billion dollars a year. Oh, um, my but, gosh! But that's based on kind of compiling tens of thousands of published and available written records that we have confidence in and that definitely do not cover all the damages and management and all the money that's actually being spent and lost. And so so the actual amount, you know, is could be four times that much. It could be 10 times that much, um, but in the billions. And so since 1960, we found... Um, highly reliable data that over a trillion dollars has been spent or lost to invasive species in the United States. Oh my goodness. All right. So I think we're going to be talking about some invasive birds and some other animals, but we did get a message from Mary in Sarasota. And she says, I'm curious about the iguanas and why they are a problem down south. So Drew or Austin, do you have some insight into those green iguanas? Uh, I'll say I'm not an expert on the iguanas, but um, I think like some of the other reptiles and amphibians that we have, they're invasive. They, they're basically able to, um, to either feed on plants or animals that don't have defenses against those. And so you end up with proliferation of an invasive species because it can um, sort of take more resources out of the environment than a native species um, that has that has evolved with 
those resources that it's feeding on. That makes such a great point. I want to reiterate that uh, that is the problem with the invasive species. Uh, I know we have kind hearts and we want everything to live, but the animals that are here have evolved and work with what the native plant materials and so on. And in fact, you know, they they work in unison. They need each other to make it all happen. But then when these animals come in here that have no other animal, you know, that's going to eat them up uh, or uh, the environment is just so perfect for them to keep going. And then they, they have so many babies, you know, we just, it's just ridiculous that it out um, performs the other animals. So our natives are the ones that are suffering. So it's not just about, you know, controlling this because we don't like it or, you know, whatever it is, but we are trying to help the natives remain in place. Is that, would that be a good analogy? Yeah, I think that's a a great way of putting it. Um, And and if we want to be selfish, um, you know, there's money that's lost, right? Whether it's it's plants that that we've had, or, or tr- old trees, or those sorts of things for for herbivores, or animals that we're trying to protect to help them um, recover from habitat loss and other things we've done to them. And so um, there's the ecological damage, and there's the economic cost, and those go hand in hand. Yes, yeah. even we, we define sustainability by balancing people profit in the planet. So yeah, we are concerned about the money aspect that invasive. And that gets the attention of the government. You know, money makes uh, people look at it. Those people in charge do look at that. It might be easy to, we don't want to vilify any animal because people people are the people who are messing up. But um, I know like a lot of people don't like the invasive toads. They don't like the uh, Burmese pythons and tegus and stuff like that. But Austin, we have some invasive birds in the Tampa Bay area. Can yes, you tell us what uh, some of those include? Yeah, so um, a lot of the invasive birds that we're going to see are actually really common. They're they're right there in front of us. Um, uh, a good portion of the, the pigeons and doves that we see are actually not. I did not know that. Um, yeah, so you have the um, Eurasian collared dove. You have the rock pigeon or dove, depending on what common name you want to go with. Uh, they're, they've adapted to being in um, urban space. Where'd they uh, come from? Um, the uh, Europe and, and Eurasian um, mm-hmm. continent space. Um, they were brought here for aesthetic purposes, uh, a, a remembrance of home kind of kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have, um, let's see, I got a, got a list here um, of a few that we see. Um, Aren't there some ducks that we that are invasive here? Yeah, we have um, the Muscovy duck, uh, uh-huh. the most common duck you'll probably see in any any park um, or urban large urban space here in, in Florida, um, especially the Tampa Bay area. Um, originally from uh, Mexico or uh, Southern America, uh, they were brought here specifically for their um, aesthetic benefits. Um, they're they're different. They're exotic and. Um, People enjoy them. They're also used as, as in the same way that we use um, livestock um, uh, chickens. Um, so their eggs, their meat, um, they benefit others. The problem that we had with them is that they were, they unlike most chickens, they can fly. And they can fly at a great distance. Um, and they um, reproduce at, at a much higher um, 
rate than than others. I wonder why their owners didn't clip their wings like a lot of people clip their chicken wings to keep them in place. Well, I guess that only works until they molt. Yeah, and it, then they regrow their feathers. It's and a short, they, it's yeah. a short-lived uh, control issue. Yeah, it only okay. works like six, ten months of the year. Then you got to reclip them. Yeah, and but I imagine if somebody is like, "Hey, I want to eat these ducks. Why don't I just have them run around the neighborhood, and then when I'm hungry, I'll just grab one." Yeah, yeah. because then you don't have to feed them; they're on their own. Actually, I know somebody that's doing that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, actually, it's actually pretty common practice. Um, the the problem is, is that they fly. They they. Right. Well, but yeah. if they're happy where they are, they're going to stay. Yeah. So you know, they're so just going to pick off one at a time. Yeah, and the pro- the problem is is that there's an excessive amount, so they reproduce oh. at such high rates that they they expand, and that's where we get into the invasion problem. Um, limited number of resources, and then they have to find more. Um, so we. And there's no real natural predator for for them in the urban space. We actually remove remove some of them um, from the equation. And, you know, it, it's also that soft-hearted person. They love to go feed the ducks. Right? Oh, they don't care what kind of duck it is. They want to get out there and feed them with the kids. Yeah. yeah. So we, we need to reintroduce what we're uh, doing here. And uh, you're listening to the Sustainable Living Show coming to you from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. Today's guests are Dr. Drew Kramer and Austin Smith from the Department of Integrative Biology and of USF. And we're talking about invasive species and how to predict their impact. So we haven't really gone there yet. If you want to be part of the conversation, give us a call at 813-239-9663 or send us an email at dj at wmnf.org and we will read it on the air. So let's talk about predicting invasive animals yes. in just a minute, but first I wanted to finish with the Muscovy duck. Okay. Um, so I looked up and Legally, you are not allowed to hunt Muscovy ducks because they're under the Migratory Bird Treaty Act of 1918, which is surprising because they're not migrant, they're not migrating anywhere. They're staying. They're kind of staying. So, Austin, what what's that about? So, so, (laughs) so it's illegal to kill them. Oh, well, there's uh, some caveat in that. There's the um, so, like any species, um, they they have a right to exist. Right? They're they're not they're pest. Um, if they're in a space, we um, are limited to to not um, do harm to them. Mm-hmm. Um, however, if you have um, a set of, of Muscovies that are a nuisance, they're actually causing um, a destructive behavior or um, they can be aggressive. Um, and they're ta- oh, yeah, I've been chased. <laughs> yes, definitely. They, they can definitely um, uh, get bored and, and go after you. Mm-hmm. Um, you can um, hire a... a a trapper or, or... So then you would have to take on the expense of, of having Correct. them removed. It's not something that the county or the city would manage for you. Correct. FWC, um, local officials um, are not are not involved in that. But if you hmm. do, in the same way, if you have like a raccoon in your attic or something like that, uh, they'll, they'll, you can have somebody come in and remove them. Um, That's it, interesting. Yeah. The other... Um, Shade of gray in this is if you have an injured invasive species and you were to take it to a uh, veterinarian, um, they're less likely to rehab them because of their their negative impact on the environment. Oh, so I see. There are there are little things that are that are occurring um, to eliminate the the problem. Okay. So, as a listener, can they do anything to get rid of other than what you mentioned? Like, yes. Yeah, so can you get a permit to? Trap them, or uh, so there are permits, um, and the details of those are are 
listed on, on the FWC's website, um, the, the limitations to that. Uh, but the easiest thing to do is to not engage with them. So the feeding of the ducks. Um, <laughs> They'll like, get their feelings hurt and leave. Yeah, so, <laughs> so the, the best thing to do is to make the, the space that they're in uncomfortable. Oh, got it. Um, or there's just not a benefit for being there. Um, <laughs> That's funny. And can you describe for the listeners what a Muscovy duck's face looks like? Oh my just gosh. in case we all, so we're all on the same page. Because, I mean, I just learned that people don't, didn't know about king toads, right. so they, don't know they might Muscovy. not know what duck we're talking sure. about. Sure, sure. Yeah, so Muscovy duck is the, the large uh, body duck that we tend to see with the red fleshy um, uh, curricles um, on, on their, their face. Little red globs all <laughs> over their face. Yeah, and those... Um, while they're not the most stunning feature, uh, <laughs> it actually is used for um, mating. Uh, so, oh, that's their fire. Yeah, that's, to get the guy, the, the girls. The, the drakes have more. Oh, red that's bumps. funny. Yep. Uh, Look at my red globules. <laughs> pretty much, uh, it, it's produced by the level of testosterone. Uh, uh-huh. it, the it, strength. Yep. Yeah, so they're going to pick the strong ones. That's yep. for sure. So that's how you can identify them, but also you can probably identify them by. They'll walk up to you looking for food yes. yeah, exactly. because they're, they're so, so domesticated. They're all in those little lakes that have to be there because they're over. Uh, they've put too many buildings on, so they're in all those little areas. That's all right, so sure. let's talk about predicting some yes. invasive uh, animals because Definitely. I think a lot of times people are interested in that there is a crossover in math and the sciences. I know, that was interesting. I didn't know that either. But now that you talk about it, it makes a lot of sense, of course, because it's data. So you uh, have to have it. Drew, you're the advisor, and your work is on spatial and population dynamics of invasive species and emerging diseases. So can you, I mean, I know what spatial means. It means space and population, how many things are there, but what, sure. what does that really mean? Yeah, yeah. So it means that, that what we spend our time doing is looking for records of where species have been found. And that could be in Florida, if we're doing something really local. More commonly, we're looking for every place that, say, a cane toad has been found worldwide. So Australia, Hawaii, the native range where it originated. And we take information about those locations and we use that information to try to understand what other places would be at risk as the cane toad continues to move or if someone was to accidentally transport it somewhere. So we're looking at things like the climatic fit, um, features, the, the type of habitat, so different plants or soils in the area. And we have mathematical tools that let us um, get a really good match between these complicated factors that are interacting and where those species are. Where did they originate? Um, cane toads originated in Africa. Oh my gosh, they're all the way from Africa. And they're everywhere. Then uh, how did they get to all these places? Originally they were moved, uh, so the name cane toad comes from uh, association with sugar cane. So originally they were moved to eat pests in They brought them fields, in. To, to certain places. Yeah, and then the beetles. They, and, the- and then they... They then were accidentally spread. Uh, from so those so many things were like that. Uh, I mean, I know the kudzu was brought in mm-hmm. to uh, for erosion control, and then it just is out of con- out of control now. That's so, very interesting. I did not know that. So, Drew, you're talking about math and uh, coming up with like equations to figure out 
predicting how the populations are going to go up and down? Um, is this like goodwill hunting where you just have equations written on all the boards <laughs> of blackboards and you have graduate students working until midnight and then, you know, doing calculations with a calculator in hand or... Um, what, what does this look like? Well, just let use papers. For, for any future potential graduate students, we try to have a nice work-life balance in my lab. <laughs> um, few, very few midnight work nights. But uh, we do write equations on boards. Our strongest tool, however, is um, computer algorithms. So the oh, same yeah. sort of thing that tells you on your Netflix what movie you'll want to watch next, we're using those tools to figure out you know, where Muscovy ducks want to be next. It's, it's the same tools um, applied to maybe a more useful purpose, right. maybe not. <laughs> right. Well, it is. I mean, you know, it, it, that's where everything comes from. It, you know, it comes from something and then, then you move it into different directions to see what's going to fly. So, so let's say your equation says uh, New York is the next place where cane toads we're going to move to? Can be invasive. What do you do? So I think um, the first thing you want to do uh, is increase surveillance in those areas that are, that are most at risk because it's when you find something early on that you can take some, some action to prevent it. Um, and Florida has a, a really good example of how this works, and that's with the medfly, which is a fruit fly, um, of extreme concern to agriculture. So possibility of, you know, hundreds of millions or more um, dollars of damage if that fly were to get established. And um, we monitor, the, the U.S. Department of Agriculture monitors constantly and actually does proactive releases of sterile male medflies um, and so far has been successful in Florida, Texas, California in sort of squashing those incipient invasions each time they've happened. Um, so I, in the 20s, the medfly got established in Florida. They had to spray a lot of pesticide, work really hard to, to get rid of it. Um, and so now we take these proactive steps that for, you know, some, some say, $10 million of expenditure, we can prevent these hundreds of millions of dollars of damage to agriculture. So you're talking about the medfly, but why didn't they do that with the citrus greening insect that came along and do the also the male sterile situation? Was that tried or is that something... Do you know what I'm talking? You know what I'm talking about. Sure. Yes. yes. Yeah. I know the pest you're talking about. I don't know the history of it as well, but my... My guess is that either um, the surveillance wasn't as good or that they sort of was too many introductions at the same time. And, mm -hmm. and so they were unable to sort of localize it and, and quarantine and, and treat effectively. Because that would only work in the early stages of something. Correct. Okay. That's very interesting. All right. So let's take... Uh Refresher. This is a sustainable living show coming to you from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. <laughs> Today's guests are Dr. Drew Kramer and graduate student Austin Smith from the Department of Integrative Biology at USF. We are talking about invasive species and how to predict their impact. If you want to be part of their conversation, give us a call at 813-239-9663 
or send us an email at dj at wmnf.org and we will read it on air. And now we have a special message from Mr. Bill Grace. Well, there you are just sitting out there in Radio Land enjoying the Sustainable Living Show and wondering how can you show your support. Just go to our website, wmnf.org, and click on the tip jar at the top of the screen. Be sure to direct your donation to SUL for Sustainable Living. And just let me say, supporting Sustainable Living in WMNF Tampa will be the most rewarding thing that you can do with your clothes on. All right. So, um, Austin, your research focuses on utilizing machine learning with ecological data to understand species invasions, niche structures, and epidemiological pathways. Glad you said that. Easy for you to say. <laughs> and Annie wants to know, what kind of machines are we talking about? Because that, that's an Annie question, I yeah, see. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. so, so what we're looking at, is a, a, as far as the actual machine, is any computer. Um, oh. but we're looking at um, integrating algorithms, I think, as Drew mentioned, you know, that, that's learning patterns um, uh, in in selection, um, in the case of Netflix, it was the TV shows or Spotify music or something like that. And what we're looking at is um, finding all these variables um, and having a, an algorithm, like um, um, a, a real smart computer, uh, look at all the um, intricate patterns in the data to make a, a prediction on what could be. So... Um, we're looking at you know common languages, uh, programming languages like R, Python, um, things that we can we can all get into. Yeah, we can all get into that. <laughs> <laughs> Not me. So, so Drew, your students, and you have more than just Austin. Your students are working on these problems and things like crustacean, zooplankton, lionfish, yes. and the SARS virus. And we have a message from Jane. What patterns or trends have you found which cause populations to decline or the opposite and explode. explode. So um, you were kind of hinting to that. Not all populations explode. Some of them decline. So that probably would be also important to find out. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And the way I like to think about it is if you think of an endangered species, that's generally a species that due to um, natural processes or more commonly human actions, it's a very small population. And we're going to put some effort into trying to recover that population like we did with the bald eagles or the brown pelicans. Mm -hmm. And those are successes, but there are a lot of endangered species out there that we've tried really hard and we can't get them to rebound. And That's so sad. That, it's sad and it's really interesting to think that an invasive species is... 10, 20, 100 individuals of some species, so a very small population that we accidentally put somewhere and now it's going to grow to where it becomes a problem and a cost to all of us. So what is different in this small population that we want to grow and this small population that we wish would not grow? Um, that's sort of what my research is focused on. And there are certain biological processes that we know go into that. So, for example, if it's hard for a species to find a mate, if it's at a small size, then the males and females won't be able to find each other and reproduce. If the species has a really good mechanism, say a pheromone or something else for finding mates, then that's going to be a population that can grow from small population. So there, there are things that, that we know about, but 
there's so many factors going together that for any specific case, um, unfortunately, we don't have a, you know, a simple answer. So when you were talking about earlier about how people can, you're monitoring that and if you can get it early, how do people do that? I mean, how, how does that happen? They, how do they even know what they're looking for and, and what is the source of information? Because I don't know. I mean, I do know a lot about a lot of these things because I'm kind of in that groove. But the people that aren't, you know, they see something they don't understand, then what do they do? Who do they call? I mean, how does that happen? Well, I think sometimes it's an accident, right? So yeah. sometimes it's some someone notices something unusual and then they get in contact with the right person. And, and who is that right person out. and how would they manage So the that? right the right person would be your um, state wildlife or natural resources agency, your local um, your local extension office mm-hmm. is a really good resource a, a good for those beginning things. For that. Yes. Yeah. Um, but now that we realize invasive species can be a problem, there are also watch lists oh. and um, and things that that managers in all states and cities have their eye out for. And for specific pests like the medfly that we mentioned already, or for some mosquitoes, there are continuous monitoring and trapping programs to try to keep track of what's around. And then if they find one of these ones that they know is a problem elsewhere, they try to respond to that. That's a tricky thing with insects, though, because then if you you know, use poisons on all this, then you're going to be killing all the predatory insects, which is then going to shoot open some other wild pest that has no monitor on it as well. That's right. Yeah. Um, So what I haven't mentioned yet, I think, are are kind of the pathways. And our main pathways for these invasive species to arrive in a new place are um, live animal and plant trade. And nearly, it's, it's a simple rule to say that if something is brought live to a place, it will escape and have a chance to see whether it establishes or not. Um, that's simply the the history of of every live thing we've species. brought anywhere, right? <laughs> but the second pathway is just general shipping, transportation, airplanes. So, so a mosquito might end up in the hold of an airplane, mm-hmm. fly to say the Galapagos Islands, for example, and then be released there. And then that's how you might get an invasive mosquito. A lot of the insect pests that we have come on live plants accidentally or in wood materials or other things or that are being shipped like that fruits. are being transported. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I understand that there's a new uh, snake in town, uh, not just the boa constrictor, but there's another larger constrictor uh, snake. Are you aware of that or... Um, so the there's the Burmese python. Okay. I'm not I'm not sure which new snake you're referring to. Okay, mm-hmm. I have to get back with you. Okay, <laughs> Annie yeah. doesn't know either. I, I can't remember. <laughs> uh, Jungle Jay actually had it online, and he mm. was talking about it. And so I was interesting, but I didn't I didn't write it down. So, so I, w- bad. I would not be surprised. Yeah, uh, me either. <laughs> exactly. I it's do want to like, go when back. Is that going to happen? I want to go back to what Annie was mentioning about like how we're monitoring it because I have like the opposite angle. So Drew and Austin are kind of talking about like how to measure and monitor invasive species, 
but I work for the IUC and the International Union of Conservation of Nature, and there's 10,600, quote, volunteers who are veterinarians and PhD doctors, and they're each in a specialist group. So there's a specialist group for trees. There's a specialist group for sea fish. There's a tropical, or there's a specialist group for fish, armadillos, anteaters, sloths. Uh, Your favorite. Cats, you know, like wild cats and things like that. And then those volunteers, they do population checks every like three to five years. So if the people who are responsible for the armadillos in the state of Florida say, hey, in the past three years, the population went down 30% or, you know, 70%, then they're going to say like, oh, well, what happened in the past three years? Oh, there's a... 20-foot-long Burmese python. Eating here. up all the armadillos. Yeah, so then they talk to the snake people. Yeah. So you as a, like a citizen scientist, you could, of course, report that to the scientists in your state or your county, but you know that's their job is to keep track. And then the IUCN, they're responsible for labeling if a species is data-deficient, least-concerned, threatened, endangered. So that's how... They put that together. That, that communicate, yeah, they're the ones who put those labels on. So, like, that's how the communication is working. You, as the backyard person, say, oh, I have these giant toads. And then the person who, you know, there's somebody out there who's responsible for some type of mosquito. <laughs> they're like, well, this mosquito population is going down. So interesting. You just mentioned the, the toad and that woman, they called in about that. So how does she get rid of that? Does she, uh, she doesn't call somebody to manage that pest for her. She has to catch it herself and then freeze it, right? Isn't that the way to go? Yeah, yeah, there, um, you know, there are humane ways to to deal with the amphibians, and the FWC is a good source for how to do those things. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. I believe the the best recommendation is to anesthetize them first and then freeze them. That sounds a lot better. <laughs> so let's talk more about these birds, um, Austin. We have invasive uh, like Quaker parrots. Not sure, like little parakeet relatives, and uh, some other parrots, some water birds. What um, are all bird invasions bad? Are all invasive birds bad? Yeah, so so the ones that you mentioned, yeah, they can be. Um, So we see, especially with the parrots, they are inhabiting um, power units. Um, They're making these giant nests um, and, uh, insulating, uh, an area with high electricity. So that's never a good thing as far as, um, as we've talked about, you know, the cost of, of damage. Um, some of the, uh, same thing with the, the ducks. Um, but, um, no, not every invasive, invasive species is deemed quote unquote bad. Um, and a really good example that we see here, um, in Florida is something like the cattle egret. Uh, the what? The cattle egret. Oh, yes. Yeah. So, so um, initially from um, um, Africa, um, found its way into South America um, through flight and got caught in a, in a heavy gust, oh. uh, took it off track. Uh, it established, uh, I want to say the 30s, 1930s, maybe 1950s, um, but found its way up into Florida. Um, and, you know, th- there's debate if it's, you know, we want to call them a colonized species or an invasive species. But the bottom line is that they've, they've, um, established, they've expanded their range and, um, they propagate fairly quick, but we see a, a, a mutualistic relationship with, you know, agriculture and livestock within that. Um, they're not really competing for resources, um, to native 
um, herons or egrets. Um, they just, they're, they're there. Um, so that's... And how long have they been here, you say? Um, since the 30s, I want to say. Okay. Or, uh, in Florida, late 50s, uh, 1960s, I believe. And can you just give us maybe like the definitions of what a colonized non-native yeah, that's is a great compared to a invasive? Yeah, so, so uh, a non-native colonized species is going to be um, a species that was introduced usually through unnatural processes. Mm-hmm. So as we said already, you know, um, shipping hulls or, or uh, pet trade, um, they establish, they reproduce, but they're not really spreading or overcompeting with the, the locals. Um, whereas an invasive species, they've um, established, they've um, uh, reproduced, and they're re- reproducing at such a high rate that they're um, um, outcompeting the native species. Yeah, that's so. the biggest problem, isn't it? Right. When it starts to outcompete the natives and then takes their habitat and uh, then they die out. Right. Then we lose them. Now, earlier when I was mentioning, like, are all invasive birds bad? You had a great answer. But what I was thinking was we used to have the little uh, Carolina parakeets mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. we caused their extinction. Well, how and did we do that? By... Do you want to bigger birds? <laughs> they had pretty feathers, and we wanted to oh, collect them. Oh, hats and such. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's so sad. they used to be from New York down to Florida, and they would eat tiny little seeds. Mm-hmm. And these Quaker parrots, which are from maybe Australia, those the green pac- ones that we see, Pacific Islands. Are those the green ones yeah. we see? Yeah, like beautiful, like gray heads, beautiful heads. Um, you know, they're kind of the same size, so maybe they serve the same niche as in, like, oh, they'll oh. eat these seeds. They'll poop these seeds out, right? Or, or I mean, it might not be a one-to-one ratio, but... Yeah, so, I mean, we, we do get some species um, that, that um, supplement populations. So or, they fill the gap. Right. Um, some of the, par- uh, the parakeets in, in, in the region, in the Tampa Bay area, they, they're, they can do that. Unfortunately, they're more... They're colonized in urban space, so it's, it's unfortunate, but they're, they're not really going for those resources. But some mm. of the... Um, species that I look into are um, uh, game fowl. Um, so I look at uh, like uh, chuck our partridges and um, um, uh, ringneck pheasants that we've introduced. Um, oh, yeah. So most common pheasant that in, in hunting Ooh. is from outside of um, the US. And that's US. European. Um, you're, you're Asian, yeah. So oh. through throughout China as well. Oh, right. Um, but we. We've I remember the art from it now that you mentioned. <laughs> yeah, it's a very common piece. We've all seen it in Uncle Je- uh, Joe's um, house next mm-hmm. to his hunting rifle, you know. What? Uh, <laughs> we've all seen those pictures. Um, but they well, are- I was talking about the art in China. But, you know, <laughs> no, I've, I've not seen Uncle them. Joe, but seen, something like that. <laughs> I've seen them in uh, many, many people's houses. Oh, that's uh, interesting. Uh, uh, taxidermy and, and all. Yeah. Uh, but they're not native. Um, <laughs> but they've, they've uh, supplemented species that were, um, that we've seen. Um, decline. Okay. Um, and, and they maintain that role that the native species... That's interesting. Had. So how the world evolves, uh, it evolves in maybe the natural form. I mean, it's hard to even say, right. you know. So um, I'm glad you mentioned like the difference between invasive and non-native animals because we got a message from Jeannie and they say uh, raccoons are usually killed, sometimes drowned, rarely, oh. ra- rarely relocated, Sad. and that doesn't usually work anyway. And I'm glad she mentioned rac- raccoons because they are native to Florida, but a lot of people consider them nuisance wildlife right. because they're eating chickens. And Yeah. 
And they, they things like well, that. If so, you feed them, I know they will. You will get a lot of them in your area. So we can have wild, native animals that also cause. That's right. Yeah, economic yeah. harm. There's there's an interesting overlap there, right, between pests and and invasives. So part of you know part of the definition of invasives is that they cause some sort of harm. They're a non-native that causes some sort of harm. We have native species that that cause harms as well. Um, and sometimes those can be exacerbated by human activities. So I'm thinking like, you know, bark beetle outbreaks or... Um, the lovers. Or urban areas with with lots of trash for, you know, black bears, raccoons, depending where you live. Mm-hmm. All of those things can become nuisances. Um, yeah. So I wanted to I want to get back on this word invasive. So when you just said uh, some of the the native press that they can become invasive, you mean aggressive, right? right? They, because they it, can it be, can never be an invasive. Can never be native. It doesn't fit together. That's there are many definitions, but the by the most widely accepted definition, an invasive species is non-indigenous. So, okay, so non-native. I but just it, want to clarify that harm. people, the, the lovers, you know, the yeah. lovers, uh, people are like adamant about those things. <laughs> no. They are, they are crazy about those things and they're native and I don't have a problem with them. I stopped killing them and all of a sudden I didn't have a problem anymore. I don't have any. Yeah. And it's really funny how that is. The more, it seems like the more aggressive you are with them, the more you have. I don't know what that is, but yeah, people are. People call them invasive, and they're not. So I just wanted to clarify that just now, for that reason. Austin, I drove through uh, kind of like Seminole Heights area in Tampa, and I was surrounded by, oh, I, I don't know the right word. I don't want to say flock, but I was surrounded by a herd of peacocks. <laughs> and can you talk well, about... it does have a specific name. Yeah. I'm going to look it up. So Austin, peacocks are not native Correct. to yeah, Florida. They're scary, too. And they're very loud. Very and loud. There was poop everywhere, peacock poop everywhere. And a lot of... You know, one person owns, quote, owns them, and there's like 40 of them, and their neighbors are not too happy. Do you have any insight into our rogue po- peacock populations? Yeah, so so I live over in St. Pete, and we have a good collection of them. Um, yeah, they're, they're, they're non-native. Um, they're not really um, invasive. They do do track um, through town. Um, that, but you just said it. You know they can be aggressive. They're they're very territorial. They want to stand stand their ground and and ensure that you're not going to harm the um, the hens. Um, but one thing that you mentioned just now, which is sort of a concern we have with any of species that's introduced, and especially our our waterfowl or, or land uh, fowl, is um, that they're they're messy. Um, they they have a lot of um, excrement. They they mm-hmm. they poop a lot. Um, and that's, uh, especially when we look at something like a Muscovy duck, where they sort of interact in the same space, um, high concentration of, of these species um, means more waste, um, and that can facilitate um, uh, disease, the spread of disease. Oh, yeah, I guess it could. Um, and, and this past year, we had a really um, uh, a, a concern with the avian flu. Um, so we, we uh, see... So, so avian flu is not um, prejudice, right? It's going to go after any species of bird. And having these species free roaming and, and, and in the area can affect... Uh, All the rest of the birds. Correct. 
Oh, and then the crossover to humans, which y'all had been talking about. I just want to let y'all know it's called an ostentation <laughs> because they're so colorful. They're so <laughs> ostentatious or a pride because they're so prideful in the way they look. That's right. funny. So the crossover from uh, animals to humans. That's, well, that's called zoonotic diseases, and yes. that's what Dr. Uh, Drew talks about. Yeah. So let's talk about that. Yeah. Um, you, you talked about your models for predicting invasive animals, populations on decline. So... Is it the exact talk? Yeah, sure. Is it a different um, blackboard no. with a different equation? Yeah. Uh, for, first, <laughs> I first, I want to correct uh, something I misspoke earlier. I okay. said cane toad was from Africa. They're actually oh. from South America. Thank you. And I, I, I mis- made that mistake. But speaking of the um, zoonotic diseases, and, and I think there's a couple different versions of this, right? There are zoonotic diseases like, say, rabies, that that are around and um, and we deal with those in certain ways with our interactions with bats or different wildlife, you know, dogs. And then there are the zoonotic diseases that maybe everyone's heard about more recently, like SARS or Ebola um, or malaria, where they're sort of new to our region and we're not sure how well they're going to spread how big a problem they're going to be. And a lot of that work obviously is medical. You know, what is the effect of disease on an individual? But if it's zoonotic, there's the ecological side because you have to have those wildlife or those mosquito vectors um, in order for transmission to happen. And so the same methods that we apply to the invasive species apply to those, um, those zoonotic diseases. I love the way you just said all that. It makes it so simple. All uh, right. Oh, so we have people online. We got they eat. always call at the end. We, What's well, up with that? Well, we're thankful for them. Yes, we are. <laughs> Thank you very and much eight. for calling. All right. <laughs> on, on line one, we have James. Hi, James. Hi, James. Hello. Um, I've got a serious question. It's not a joke. Okay. Good. The most uh, invasive and destructive species is human beings. What, what's being done about that? <laughs> That's a great point, and... And well, um, we we don't disagree that much. <laughs> right. But, th- you know, that's just the way it is. All right. So um, one person, uh, Duran, asks, how do you deal or remove cockroaches? Because some cockroaches are invasive. Annie, you got any ideas? Well, like- I use boric uh, acid, you know, but that's what I use around the house, just, you know, flake it around in different places. But I understand it's toxic to animals, so you have to be careful about where you put it. All right, we got another email that's uh, from David, and he says, great show today. One of the oddest urban wildlife things I've seen was on Skyway Park near George Road and Memorial Highway. I saw an osprey nest that was on a large light pole, and there was a noisy parrot nest right underneath the osprey nest. Oh, they were together. How odd. And did we have another caller? No. Uh, yeah, in just a minute. Okay. I and we got another text message. I live in Clearwater, and I've had honeybees relocated to Arcadia three times because they inhabit my cable boxes. It's just about urbanization, oftentimes. And remember, honeybees are non-native. That is correct. But they sure do give us good honey. But they give us good things. All right. And now we have Jimmy. And great. We had James, and now we have Jimmy. Hello, hey, Jimmy. Jimmy from St. Pete. Hi, yeah, how are you? Um, Go ahead. I'm doing good. I like your show. Thank and you. Wanted to ask, you know, if um, he knew why the uh, 
I just remember there was just a lot more of the green anoles, you know, the little green lizards yeah. when I was a kid. And um, I saw a couple. I just went to Okeechobee. I saw a couple this weekend down there. But And then, yeah, and then the other little green tree frogs. No, I think yeah. the Cuban tree frogs eat them. Yes. All right. Thank you, Jimmy. We're going to ask the experts. So do you guys know about the green anoles? And yeah, their- Austin has his head shaking. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so the, the ones that we're familiar with are the, the, the Cuban anoles or the brown anoles, um, and they've definitely have propagated in great numbers. But um, there's a recent study that showed that the the green anoles, um, we thought, you know, they outcompeted and they, they moved on or they went um, – regionally extinct but so this recent research is showing that they're actually going up tree canopies so rather than being oh we just don't see them correct oh that's such great news so there's there's a little bit of that it's not to say that their populations are you know booming yeah but there's there's hope oh that's great and what about the the green tree frogs um probably that's just outcome being yeah so it's sad those big old white gray Cuban frogs have been eating all my babies up forever. <laughs> I, don't, I don't see any green ones anymore. So today we were talking about invasive species and how to predict their impact with Dr. Drew Kramer and Austin Smith from the Department of in- Integrative Biology. <laughs> so Drew and Austin, do you guys have any closing remarks in the last minute of the show? Um, <laughs> uh, just... Are, are, are we hopeful for the future it's a radio show. of invasive? <laughs> so I think, I mean, the, the trend lines are that invasive species are going to continue, new species are going to continue to show up as we engage in trade and all, all the things that mm-hmm. people do. And that some of those are going to cause problems and we're going to have more economic costs. And, and I think the lesson for that is simply um, that the preventive steps and the surveillance, if we prioritize those, that's going to be sort of the best bang for our buck and the, mm-hmm. the best hopeful outcome for our native, um, native species. And so rather than letting things become established and then trying to deal with the, the bad outcomes of the Burmese pythons and the cane toads, um, we should try harder to keep them from getting here in the first place. Yeah, don't dump your pets. Right. Right. That's for sure. All, All right. right. With that. Well, thank you so much for being here. I learned a lot. It was yeah. very it was interesting. a great topic. Thank it you, really guys. Was. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this show and our weekly content, please go to WMNF.org, donating through the tip jar and directing your donation to the Sustainable Living Show. Stay tuned. In the next hour, you will hear WMNF Community Speaks with Mabili. And he has people there, too. He has live folks. (laughs) Make sure to tune in next Monday morning at 11 for the next Sustainable Living Show. We will be talking with Corrine Brennan uh, at Grow Permaculture Farm School in Brooksville. This is going to be a very interesting show. Follow our Facebook page, Sustainable Living WMNF, to stay in the loop. And to listen to our past shows, just go to Listen On Demand on WMNF.org. I'm Annie Ellis. And I'm Kenny Coogan. Remember, if you're looking for someone to save the world, look in the mirror. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. This is WMNF Tampa.